It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. With us is Nick Easley. He's a CEO and founder of 3C, a cannabis consulting firm. And then while everyone is sleeping, he's also the CEO and managing partner of Multiverse Capital. Nick, thanks for being on The Talking Hedge. Absolutely, Josh. Thanks for having me back on. Lots has changed since uh, the last time we spoke, so really glad to go over some of these updates. Absolutely. For those who didn't hear or those that don't know, why don't you uh, tell us how you got into the industry and what a 3C and Multiverse Capital is? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, originally I'm from farm country in Wisconsin. Um, you know, I was, you know, 4-H, Future Farmers of America, kind of a little nerdy wannabe farm kid back in the day. Um, I was actually a romance language uh, crypto linguist for the Air Force. So I was in the service for a little over four years after I got out of high school and uh, got hurt in the service, flipped a coin, came to Colorado, found cannabis, super helpful for my life. Um, pretty much ended up dedicating my life and career to it. So the last 15 years, but first it started helping caregivers produce cannabis without like pesticides. And then like with the first commercial licenses, how do we get these licenses? Um, you know, by 2012, we were working in multiple states, 2015, started working in like, you know, Germany, Canada, preparations for Denmark. So, you know, realistically, like my injury in the military kind of brought me towards cannabis, but I'm a big people, planet, profit type of guy. Like, I really see that this is the first time in the history of business that if you're doing the right thing, producing like four season hybrid greenhouse, outdoor, like large scale operations, very efficient manufacturing and retail experience, like you make more money. So um, really kind of have a social environmental initiative, like when it comes to 3C and the types of clients we work with and getting new licenses. And then, um, you know, on the capital side, like with Multiverse, um, you know, it's by like probably like 2014, I just kept realizing I was helping start all these great companies that needed to raise capital. And 3C, a big thing we do is make financial models or our tick docs or like you know, from a non-legal standpoint, start to like plan how to do a capital raise, your structuring. And uh, I realized like if I had some venture funds at my own disposal, like we get some very unique kind of exclusive deal flow. So having our own source and pool of capital to invest into projects when we see it or to do special purpose vehicles. Um, that's why I launched Multiverse Capital. And that's, you know, the three different venture funds for medical investments, ancillary investments and uh, recreational investments here domestically. We also manage and deploy capital internationally, but that's traditionally through special purpose vehicles. So yeah, special purpose vehicles or, or SPACs as they're calling them now, they're being like rebranded, but basically the same thing, I think as special purpose acquisition corp. Um, your, your deal flow though, tell me about how post pandemic and pre pandemic are different. Um, I've been kind of bringing it up 2019, how, you know, um, cannabis lounges were supposed to be a thing, but people really wanted to look at accurate uh, vaping or accurate dosing, uh, vape machines, all that. Where were you looking at pre-pandemic? How has that shifted post-pandemic? What are you looking at in the future? Well, there have been some massive changes. I mean, from even the application work we were doing, like in Illinois during the time we started, it's like started to put in like pandemic response plans into our business plans mm -hmm. and things we never even really considered. We then urgently like, I'm on the board of directors for Americans for Safe Access, like largest medical patient kind of advocacy group here in the United States. And one of the things we were trying to figure out as a board right away is like, how do we get cannabis deemed essential, like from medicine? So like, if you were a medical dispensary or in the cannabis industry, you're welcome. Like that was like work we did back in like, you know, February, March, like, how do we prepare this? How do we actually get this deemed essential? Of course, other than like, um, 
Massachusetts that didn't want like all these out of towners coming in to use their rec program, you know, like they wanted, didn't want New York City, let's say, coming up to buy weed. So some things that did majorly change with this pandemic, like the retail consumer experience. So now having like with a lot of our dispensaries, like, you know, an app where I can like see the hours, what's on the menu board, how that's incorporated with Dachi, how I can do pre-order pickup, how I can pay online and like come up to the store and like have a little thing. It's like, pull up to the door now. It's like, so a lot of tech, a lot of AI changes that have happened for how people actually get products. Also the consumer experience of the dispensary, like the wannabe, like I'm the Apple store of weed type MedMen BS, no offense to that. A little bit of offense, I guess. Yeah, it should be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for how they raise capital. Yeah. Like that idea, like, you know, I'm a pretty simple guy. Like when I go to an Apple store, like, I'm like, where the fuck do I go? Like, they're, sorry for the language, but it's like, okay, there's stuff over here. There's stuff, who can help me? I just really want some, like those new AirPods. Like, where are they? I, I need to get out of here. I get to a meeting. So what we found with coronavirus, so the same thing, like people are expecting a quicker experience. Like, so we like to have like new patient or new client lanes, like returning client lanes, pre-order pickup lanes. We've also gotten deeply into some of our vending machines where we have these nice little vestibules where there's a security guard there. I can close the dispensary way early at let's say like eight, like whenever it doesn't make sense to like keep the dispensary open. But for laws of the city, I might be able, I could be open till midnight. So to capture four hours of additional revenue times seven, all of a sudden, boom, I'm almost 30 hours of additional like potential revenue. We're opening the store early in the morning. So online ordering, pre-order pickup, like really efficient consumer flows in the retail standpoint, as well as these new vending machines has kind of been huge. And, you know, Josh, you're right. Like these social use lounges, like the first ones we worked on, you know, there were some quasi-legal ones back in the day medically, like in Oregon and, and like San Francisco that had weird grandfathered laws and not what we're talking about here. These are like the new categories of social use, adult use consumption lounges, which are allowed in Michigan and Illinois and California and more states are starting to adopt them. And this is where like you have a dispensary on one side, but also like this lounge on the other that could be doing infused foods and tapas, beverages, like mocktails, no alcohol, no tobacco, but you could have concerts, you can have like cover charges. We had like the one in Palm Springs and like a couple in West Hollywood, they had just started like pre-Rona. And then everyone's like, this is a garbage business model. I'm like, mm. have you guys ever heard of bars? Yeah, bars are closed down right now too. Bars are gonna come back. Like, it's not just like people drinking at liquor stores or like drinking by themselves. So I'm still really have like a high buy category and buy rating when it comes to these lounges, especially near like border locations in Illinois where like Wisconsin people are gonna be coming across the border, experiencing cannabis, kind of like these giant firework superstores. So on the retail side, like we've definitely changed like some of my friends in California out in Santa Cruz, they own a few dispensaries. Um, you know, their CEO, he told me, he's like, delivery used to be 4% of our business. It's almost 60% of our business now. So it was definitely time for a pivot. Yeah, we just did 17.5 billion in revenue. Like, you know, Forbes published this last week and we're on track to do, you know, 45 billion, 50 billion, 60 billion by the time we're getting into 2024, 2026. It's only happening and, and thank God, Buddha, Allah, thank everybody for having something other than just alcohol to help kind of like take the edge off during this last year. So it's been a hard time, like watching businesses fail, you know, people not knowing what's going on, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of people with problems with sleep, you know, instead of just getting on opiates and other, like, I'm really thankful that we deem this essential. Now that's on the retail side. Now, when it comes to manufacturing, when it comes to like cultivation side, 
Um, we've also seen changes. Like how do you keep all of your workers at a place? And like, what, what would you deal with if there was like some sort of um, like people in your company get sick? Like how do you deal with recalls? How do you like staff those? And then there were some of these that had allowed their workers to unionize where like they were on strike. They still have massive orders. So like that was the first time we had to deal with like scabs and picket lines. And mm. I'm all about labor peace agreements and allowing our workers to unionize. But it was one of those things that we always talked about before, but we never had plans in place where if there was some sort of major problem, how we would deal with that. Um, we've also seen certain categories of products skyrocketing when it comes to beverages, infused edibles, things that didn't, especially in the beginning, like involve smoking. We've already gone through vape crisis 1.0, vape crisis 2.0, vape crisis 3.0. There's going to be more, yeah, pyrolysizing plastics and glycols and artificial flavors, like not the best things for you, like putting certain vitamin acetates in your lungs, not the best. So we did see a lot of product manufacturers changing like their types of products to go from inhalation or pyrolysitic, like burning products to like more uh, topical applications, other things that would be, be more mellow. And we, of course, as a firm and investment company, very much stayed away from anyone making any sort of health claim. Like, mm. yeah, CBD and a lot of cannabinoids have great anti-inflammatory properties, especially for the lungs. But like any companies that were jumping on that bandwagon of like, CBD is going to cure Rona. It's like, like we were very, very careful. We pulled some capital. We did a lot of direction. We had to do some risk mitigation for companies doing that mm. because you can take like never let a good cri crisis go to waste like you know warren buffett said mm -hmm. um but also like don't get ahead of it and don't do the wrong thing during it because like how you treated your customers during this last year they're going to remember and even though i think you know you and i could agree josh like some generations like they're going to be impacted from this for the rest of their lives how they're going to be purchasing products like willing to go to stores stand in lines like let's go hang out at six flags in a line for four hours to go down like yeah, some things are going to change. Other people, they don't care already. And like, they're going back, they're back into normal life. So I do think that all of our businesses and all of our investments, we really need to be strategic now about thinking like pre-Rona, post-Rona, how are we going to like market a little differently? The marketing changes that happened, Josh, like no one really knew these things of like, it was kind of like funny. Like I saw cannabis ad campaigns that I had worked with, like deeply internally confidential in the start of this, of like, how do we get in front of people now? Especially as like billboards were being banned in California. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of a sudden, like, and I'm not saying I'm a user here of like Tinder or Grindr or Bumble or any of these like sorts of dating apps or like weed maps. Um, but all of a sudden people started seeing cannabis apps on these like social media dating apps that they, you know, and these were ideas that we had come up with like back in March where like, People are going to be lonely. How can we get in front of people? What things are they still going to be using? So like here by like March, April, May, like we started seeing cannabis ads across platforms like you never saw advertising happen before, um, which was really unique. So we had to evolve from a marketing standpoint. And the biggest big change, Josh, like, you know, without conferences, like, you know, I would always have staff going to certain conferences, getting insider kind of like beta, like meeting like the actual people in that market not only for more leads for consulting or investment leads, but just like we really have a pulse on the industry and what's going on when that was going away. And like people started talking about stuff on clubhouse or like, you know, some of these like live virtual events, which people thought were going to be great in the beginning, but like virtual events, like keeping somebody's attention span, like just not happening. So we had to get really creative as well in how we were doing our investor meetings, our data rooms, like, 
contacting investors because some of them like we've made massive returns over this last year. I mean, especially like that, those public dips in March, like there were companies we knew that were five, 10 times like more valuable. The market was just freaking out. So we were, we were even buying companies that we hate, like <laughs> straight up hate, but I'm like, their stock is at three, four, five, six bucks right now. I'm like, I hate that company. I'm like, but it should be around 2030. I'm like, yeah, we made some decisions and put some money into some companies that I never would have normally signed off on, but it was just the times. Um, it's also been a time of massive desperation where a lot of companies doing killing it in revenue, they haven't had the money to like reinvest into new systems and grow because it's been more expensive to operate. And capital raising for like smaller private capital raisings, like it's gotten a lot harder. And you've seen like massive news of like this company selling for 39 mil. This one's doing that, like lots of big M&As. I mean, or like that half a billion dollar fraud thing with Tilray and a few of those other companies on like, bumping and playing with their stock. Mm -hmm. Everyone really focused on public companies this last year because like that liquidity, we could jump in, we could jump out, um, especially with the new states coming. Um, one of the dumbest things that we saw during coronavirus though is like during the transition of power of like our presidency, you know, that was a wild one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, here everyone thought like federal legalization was just going to happen, but people don't understand like the International Narcotics Control Board or like how the UN and like the psychotropic, like the 1961 and 71 single treaty on psychotropics, like how all these things work. And they're like, new president, we got Harris, they're going to legalize, like stock prices go flying through the roof when it's like, more acts not happening right away, guys. Like CARE Act doesn't include this. It doesn't say, all it says in that is like that they have to reschedule it. it doesn't say to where or how or when. So, you know, there's just been a lot of mass confusion um, and sadly, I think the companies that have been hurt most are some of the private companies that have massive traction, massive runway, exclusivity in markets that are just desperate for raising capital and like they're, they're sustaining. But those are the companies I'm focusing on right now, like really through SPVs and other like strategic acquisitions to like get them the capital they need when their value is like lower, the industry doesn't even look at them as much. And most people, it's not even on their radar. It's interesting. You're seeing Canada kind of pull back. Um, they've they've kind of come back out of Colombia. They've closed or sold some of their greenhouses. Um, overproduction, too expensive. There's also protectionism on the the import side uh, for Colombia. And so, curious. You know, you mentioned your um, environmental social governance. You know, your your uh, social responsibility investing, and yet still capitalism. Right. So we're kind of, we're, I'm, I'm with you the same thing. And I'm, and I'm always curious how you kind of balance that, that dichotomy or duality with being in, you know, a capitalistic society, but wanting to do good. And I'm wondering if the eventuality is automation, will it be vertically integrated agriculture? Or is it going to be AI and automation on the growing side? Um, and then, I want to talk to you about vir virtual events too, because I think with the Oculus and virtual reality, that's really the only way to bridge that gap. But first off, with businesses, how do they, how, with Canada making you know $6 a gram at, at production in the US, maybe a buck 30 um, you know, to cultivate, how are they going to, to bring that down? Is it going to be automation? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I look at everything like, you know, cannabis is a very, very special plant. I mean, I was homeschooled by a botanist for a long time. I love medicinal plants. 
And, but the sad thing is we just got to remember like this is an agricultural commodity. What other agricultural commodities do we produce indoors? The only reason that we went indoors was to fricking hide because it was illegal and then high times and everybody like that's all we focused on we spinning little lights and like these little cool things like to like, like grow indoors cool. That's not how we do mass production of anything agriculturally. So, you know, Canada, by being one of the like first legal big adult use, you know, countries like they had the stock market and, you know, did about 20 to $40 billion of fraudulent listings. They thought they were going to go over and take over the world. And I mean, I was one of the only people back in 2016, 17 and 18, like calling this out, like, you know, on Forbes in multiple places. I'm like, Canada is like their tax rate is way too high. They don't have the right agreements with a lot of countries. Um, Their entire pharmaceutical line could be in jeopardy for some of this. And the cost of production there, it's like they're not going to be producing all the weed for the world. So some of them were smart. They then started looking at licenses in Lesotho and Macedonia and Greece and somewhat in Portugal and Spain and Uruguay and other countries. But they didn't have a way of vetting those countries to understand like if those laws were compliant or not. So very different like, like what we did, like in going like Denmark and Germany and Uruguay and Colombia. I mean, Colombia just changing their law and allowing flower export is going to be a massive change. But what the problem with Canada is they thought the international market was going to expand a lot quicker than it was because their market was expanding and so was the US. But internationally, it's a compassionate use medical program where countries can sign in for this, but it has to be a bulk API, like active active pharmaceutical ingredient. It's not vape pens. It's not cookies products, you know, and burners like Girl Scout number three being sold in like German pharmacies, like, hey, yeah, I got cookies at the pharmacy. It's like, like international is a whole different ballgame than when it comes to US cannabis, Canadian cannabis, or Uruguayan cannabis. And Uruguay allows medical and adult use. And they were the first adult use country that the IMF and the W, like everyone kind of looked at them and we thought like some major things could happen. So Canada now, like they've seen the light, like they went after every single country in the world. Like what I did in South Africa to like try and work and get licenses, I was spent like a quarter mil. They spent like hundreds and like tens of millions of dollars doing the same thing we were doing and not even winning some of those licenses. So now they're selling many assets for pennies on the dollar. Um, there was that n- recent news on like Aurora selling like their 1.7 million square foot greenhouse or um, their greenhouse. That was one on top of about 20 others. I've been working with teams. Like I said this in 2008, I'm like, I cannot wait to be cannibalizing assets that these, <laughs> that these Canadian pubcos bought for way too expensive and just bringing them back across the border. Now I'm dealing with like the US and like how I'm gonna get taxed on those. So yeah, that you're going to see more and more news on that happening. You know, Canada 2.0 did not save Canada. Unfortunately, you're 40 million people in Canada. 90% of them live within 10 miles of the U.S. border. You've got this little place called British Columbia that's kind of like California and Oregon. It's kind of like the California and Oregon of Canada and like copious amounts of cannabis produced there that goes from west to east. The tax rate in Canada, way too high. You only have a few cities in Canada that matter, like Toronto, um, I mean, mean, there's Vancouver, like there's very few like big places you can launch dispensary brands and try to be vertical. So what's going to happen, like long wind for your question there is like, you know, cannabis, like indoor, like we've been trying to put indoor out of business for over a decade. I mean, you you think like 22 pounds of coal to produce one gram of indoor cannabis is like, I'm a hippie. I love the earth, but it's like, like, so greenhouse cannabis, that's four season. Like a lot of people are going to say you can't grow good cannabis in a greenhouse. I'm not talking flimsy plastic. I'm talking Dutch Venlo glass greenhouses, CO2 enriched, light deprivation, augmentation, like 
perfect climate controls like you can't tell the difference and like it cost me less than a fifth to build that building less than a fifth to operate that building and like my quality is just as good if not better mm. also massive outdoor plantations where we're doing some flower but most of our oils from big outdoor plantations so as the industry is really growing like the vertical nature like it works because they cut out a lot of the middlemen so like they're not having to pay 15% to a distributor and then paying like this to a retail, like they're capturing more of that revenue, but no one else in normal business, like owns the corn farm, owns the corn syrup manufacturing place and owns the candy store. That's like selling like the candy. It's only because it's like, that's how it worked on a vertical basis. Um, soil to oil is the most profitable vertical in cannabis at scale. So even a state like Georgia, where, you know, they're currently pending six licenses there. I put in for a license down there. Also did 70 other public companies or like truly sued the state to like allow their merger to like get, take place before the applications. We're just seeing more and more sketchy operators, especially big MSOs, writing the rules in their favor, um, really taking advantage of poor social equity and poor minorities, like to put them up as a key man or a key woman to like be the CEO of this company and like meet social equity requirements. Mm -hmm. We're going to start calling that out. I mean, the Illinois program was such a joke. I mean, billions of dollars lost and wasted for a few large, rich white companies to like own the industry. So I, I do see how a massive diversification of social and racial equity is coming in the space. And they're going to be meticulous in how they look at these things. But more automation is going to continue to happen. More of the supply chain disruptions that happened during coronavirus. So like being able to scale, like not just starting your grow operation in a 12,000 square foot facility where like you can't grow, you know, you can't go up, you can't go to the sides. Really thinking about scalability in these new markets is critical. And long, long term, once we do some changes and we maybe have a federal office of medical cannabis control, and we have a compassionate use medical program, and just like you said, Colombia with their protectionism of trying to prevent imports into the country, same thing is going to happen between states where they're like, why is a pack of cigarettes $4 in Virginia and $20 in, in New York City? I mean, it was all grown in the same place. But then now that like, we've got like little tobacco plantations all over the country and like they're paying taxes and having lobbying and making jobs, like it doesn't make sense to grow cannabis in some of the states that we're doing. We should be doing it like where the agricultural vectors, temperature, airflow, humidity, daytime high, nighttime low, all of those things are good where we can produce this crop under a low taxation and then interstate commerce. We're not there yet, but that efficiency and automation will come only to a point though. I mean, we're some silly monkeys and you know, we do some great technology sometimes, but like there's a level, like when I see Ed Rosen saw, saw another talking about all like the little robots that are gonna be growing all the weed in the future. It's like, that's, that's too far. Like, but like also using like these rowing, rolling benches that are like like from poinsettias from other like big agricultural commodity crops that's where we pull most of our beta from. And that's where I see like the biggest investments need to happen. And it could have been Canada. It's just, it's too expensive, the tax. It's too bad of a climate. And they could have and should have used their resources to actually like get into countries where good things would happen, not corrupt, like I'm not saying Zimbabwe is corrupt or the wrong country or Macedonia's. Like I've been and worked in all those countries for cannabis, but trying to normalize cannabis and have EU GMP compliance and like PICS, PIC-S, like pharmaceutical production standards for clinical trials, like you should probably be very selective in which countries you're working in. It's not just like, we got operations in this state. Let me do a press release. Now I'm worth 10 times more. Like that's what we saw. 
the days of that are over. And if you're one of those small companies trying to like raise in, you know, Jamaica or this place or that place and thinking like, you know, oh, we're unique. It's another dot on the board for them. That's not the case. It's just, it's simply not going to work the same how it used to. What is your crystal ball for when cannabis might reach $20 a pound and, and rival that of tobacco? I'm, I'm hoping that that'll come with the resurgence of, you know, good cannabis, good weed that you actually want to smoke. And if, whether that's the equivalent of, um, you know, mom and pops, tier one, tier two, small growers, just like micro brews kind of came out and actually provided something worth drinking. When will cannabis provide something worth smoking? And when will it be at an affordable price, like $20 a pound uh, that you see at the cannabis shop or uh, tobacco shops? Well, it, it should be. And, and in some places, it's already there. It's the taxation. And it's a few things I'm testing to where if I'm in a market that requires five pound batch testing, I mean, I'm paying $240 for every five pounds just for my microbial residual solvents, heavy metals, pesticides, like, you know, that's expensive. So like, we do need to have some better standards, be it like patient focused certification or some better international standards on like what actually is consistent testing based on like methodologies and like lab testing and like having labs like testing similarly, that's going to be a big change. Um, the tax will always be a big thing um, when it comes to this or like for the products, like certain types of manufactured products, like getting there. But I, I still remember like the data was like, like a pack of organic cigarettes was like seven or 17 cents to produce all in marketing, like everything. And then it's being sold for like 15, 20 bucks. We'll still see things like that long-term. Um, and they're only going to give so many licenses, just like liquor stores or bars. And like, they'll starting to set like an MSRP, um, you know, on a tax standpoint. So like, that's going to happen. And that's still going to be state by state for a while. And like the crystal ball for when federal legalization is going to happen. It's, it's kind of like the wrong question. Like we still have a long ways to go a lot needs to be put in place. Like we're not ready for federal legalization yet when it comes to testing, when it comes to like how to actually differentiate a medical industry from the adult use industry. Sadly, you know, even as a disabled vet, I see so many veterans not getting their medical cards anymore because like, why go to a doctor? Why get put on this list? Why maybe lose like my VA benefits by disclosing this or like it coming up on some sort of test? Like, so we still have a long way to go to really determine like, how to do this best as a nation. But when it comes down to it, even once this legalizes deep down in the future, think about it like bananas. Like we legalize bananas, we're growing them in each state differently in warehouses, some people greenhouses, some people got these dang cute little ones, these other ones, like eventually they're gonna come from places where bananas grow very, very inexpensively. Mm -hmm. So like, just like what Dole had done in the past or Henry Ford with rubber early on down in like Brazil, not to say they did a nice job or were good to the indigenous people there, we can do better. <laughs> But the countries that the companies that are looking at the places like Peru, the Mexico's, the Uruguay's, the Colombia's, the Portugal's, the South Africa's, like, where can I do mass production, high quality, still environmental, and meet those international standards? Because we need to get to that point. And there are products that are like very, very affordable. Or you think about a brand like, like Old Pal, for example. A lot of people make joke about Old Pal. It's like sativa, indica, hybrid, and it's cheap. It's like, you know, shake smaller little buds, but it's a consistent, like decent product. And when they came in with that brand, it's like some consumers don't want that highest end thing with like the bamboo little top and spending $68 an eighth. Some people just want an ounce for a hundred bucks and like roll some joints. Like you got to know your market. You got to know the industry. 
and there's there's time and space for all but like your example on micro businesses or micro breweries you know we looked into this really deep in 2014 um that's back when i was started really studying like what was it like post prohibition mm-hmm. so i figured like we're unique kind of like silly critters and you know we're probably going to cop copy some of the same things that happened there like some trends Mm -hmm. and one of the big things that was there was like how alcohol and liquor distribution companies got in the way so like there's in colorado i would say what probably 500 to a thousand microbreweries like making some great beer it's not sold in nebraska or utah because once you get across state lines like using like a special type of like ab bev or liquor distribution company your products aren't getting to market Mm -hmm. same things that we're seeing today in Nevada, same things that we're seeing in California, where there's distribution companies and shelf space contracts. And like, you walk into a supermarket and you see a certain sort of ketchup on the end cap, like before the aisle of condiments, they're paying for that. Like, that's not random. Like, this is all from normal retail. So some states aren't allowing like shelf space contracts. Others, like if you don't use a certain distributor, you're not going to these 50 dispensaries, like in the Los Angeles area. And you're maybe paying them a premium to do it. And then you're sometimes paying the dispensary to even carry your products because there's so many products now. So I think similar to like alcohol and liquor distribution, like that side and understanding that is super important for the mom and pop craft grow. Because like you said, like when can we get something that's like drinkable, like compared to like a Bud Light or something. But remember everyone in the U S can brew beer. Like you're not supposed to sell it without like certain tax licenses and so forth. You got to clean the carboy. You got to like get the priming sugar. You got to like clean the bottles. You got to like, you know, all these little things you got to do. Essentially, we're pretty lazy beings. And when you think about like a really good organic tomato at a farmer's market, like an heirloom, that's just like so fucking tasty. Like what a tomato is supposed to be compared to like something from Cisco or like aroma that you see at the store today that was maybe grown who knows where. Mm -hmm. Everyone can grow their own tomatoes too. But like farmers markets and these other things being less than 5% of the total addressable market, that's where I come from. Like that's my world. I'd much rather have like a good craft beer made by somebody like locally and like a tomato from like a lady who's got such bad arthritis growing it in her garden and like telling me the story and the type of it. Like, but that's not sadly how most people consume products. Like it's got to be consistent on the way home. Here's a six pack. I know the experience I'm going to get. It's not super expensive. So I, I still think that that's going to continue. And that's why we really got to create these brands now that can be done affordably, done environmentally, take market share, still be a good, reliable, repeatable consumer experience, but not at the cost of thinking like you've sold out and become big cannabis, because that's really the only way we're going to get a lot of these products to market. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who want to go to events to see what products are available. They want to try things. They want to meet people, Mm -hmm. um, all of that. And yet we're kind of like in a lockdown. I think the ICBC is going to have a live event in Austin coming up. And then uh, the international or the um, MJ BizCon is going to be in October in Vegas. So they are starting to, to come about, but I'm curious about the change that's already occurred and people may not feel comfortable going until there's herd immunity or vaccinations, or maybe they never will go out what will normalize that? I'm curious if it's an Oculus or virtual reality, what can make virtual events the equivalent of being there in person or is it just not even feasible? Yeah, it's, there's definitely a combination. I think, you know, we've seen this with Clubhouse. We've seen this with like other kind of like Facebook Live and like 
there are good people that have good things to say that are worth listening to. Now, the sad thing that a lot of these live events, like I've participated in a lot this year, um, it's you got to do different programming on how you actually like keep people's attention, like getting people that are going to be like a little bit more argumentative. It's like not so nice, like not just highlighting like the same old people and like talking about garbage. Like it's already online. People could do that. So you have to have something that's new and exclusive. Um, I think about this Portuguese conference that I was asked to speak at, and this was about a year, year and a quarter ago. And it's one of the first ones like, we're going to do this online thing. Normally my staff or an assistant would like set up all my profiles and deal with all this. Like I'm a pretty busy guy. And they're like, um, Nick, there's some stuff you have to do for this one. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, well, we have to design this like avatar for you. And you're going to like wander around like this thing. I'm like, excuse me. I'm like, I, I type with two fingers guys. Like, I, you know, I shouldn't say that, but like, I don't even know how to type. I run empires and giant companies, but like, I don't know how to type. And like, I'm pretty good with technology, but like, I'm like, I have to make this avatar thing and like navigate, like, I don't play video games. I'm like, I'm not even interested in going to this conference. And like, I had to speak at it. <laughs> it was going to be like me speaking as an avatar up on the stage. And I was going to have to like figure out how to like with these arrows, like get up from my seat and like walk up the stage. And I'm like, I'm not into this. Like, so that's me. And I'm not saying I'm like some old crusty guy that's like against tech, but it was too, like, it was before it's time. And they thought like, oh, do we still fun? Like people will be able to interact with their avatars. I'm telling you, every single event that any of my companies, and like I own parts of well over a hundred cannabis companies and work with many, many companies on a daily basis. No one has had success with these online events of like where they would have like one of like their sales staff, like sitting at their virtual booth all day and like waiting for someone to come up and be like, hey, and talk, like didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So like going there for some speakers, great. The idea of like expo halls, like if somebody can come with like a virtual expo hall, that's good. But like you think about MJ Biz, like we've been going for years, like the people you bump into in the aisles, like, oh, hey, we worked on that thing in Ohio together. How's that project going? Or like, what happened on this thing here? Like, oh, we'd reviewed your deck for Puerto Rico. Like, did that thing actually happen? Or like, that's where we got to figure out a better way of networking. And one thing I, I've really loved, um, Susan Soros with, um, uh, Susan Soros did one and also um, Sensi Media. They did one where they like would have like a little event but then like they set it up well with Zoom. So it was like two minute, like little things. And it'd be like, boom, you're paired up with a new person. Like, hey, who are you? Where are you at? And it was a nice way um, like to get to know people um, and like to match kind of skill sets. So like those sorts of well thought out live events, I think could be good. But even with like that ICBC one, that's in 45 days. Like, you know, I'm a volunteer firefighter. Like I, you know, getting close to like getting vaccine time. I think once more people are having vaccines like they'll be more comfortable to travel. A lot of businesses are freaking desperate. They got most of their money from trade shows, um, especially like new products. Um, a friend of mine's company is a supply company. And I had to talk to them a couple of days ago about like, what's their pivot? Like, because their in-person store sales are like 17% of what they were. Their commercial sales and accounts are like way, way down. And then a lot of companies aren't reinvesting into certain things. They're trying to survive right now. I'm like, well, like, what, how are you going after new markets? He's like, well, we are doing this and that. I'm like, that's same shit, different day, buddy. I'm like, like you need to know like who's winning all the new licenses in these new states get ahead of them right away like not try to sell them consumables right away because they don't need it but like their lights their dehumidification their hvac like we have to come up with new marketing strategies based on these times um the same thing for like a consulting company or capital companies or if you're a dispensary trying to find partnerships like you really got to do your homework and go online like if you're looking for one of those new vending machines that we use like there's 
20 online that talk about like them being the best. I've tried out 16 of them. They're garbage, like garbage. So it, it's kind of a weird time where I think anyone who can navigate this well, Josh, is going to come out ahead in a good way. These new in-person events are going to start, I think, once herd immunity and a lot more. I mean, because even for me to like get over to like some of my meetings in Zurich right now, London, like I don't have like vaccine card. I can't, I can't travel. I mean, I can still get to Uruguay. I can still get to Colombia. I can get special purpose for certain things. But I mean, this year we, we called it really early. Even last year was like, don't, don't plan on anything normal until about mid 2022 when it comes to like events or shows, because even a lot of the people that would normally go, they might attend from home, but like everyone's so sick of these Zoom meetings and these others, which I'm fine with. That's how we had worked before this. Um, we we got to get it evolving and adapting. It's not just more AI or like like that virtual reality like type conference. Like it sounds cool. Some people might like it, but like the first couple I had to do like that, it was so hard and technological. Download this thing, figure this thing out, get into here. It's all glitchy. I'm like this like weird looking avatar thing. I'm like, I'm not comfortable giving a speech. It's like a cartoon character right now. I'm like, can we just do like video and like, let's go for this. So, you know, we're evolving. Some things are going to work. Some things aren't. A lot of the changes that came out from coronavirus, like you gave us an inch, we're never giving it back. Like curbside pickup, online ordering, delivery. I mean, I think even a lot of things with like alcohol, I, a friend of mine came to visit a couple of weeks ago and they're like, I stopped and got you a margarita. I'm like, what are you like? I don't really drink it. I'm like, how did you get me a margarita to drive through? And like, oh yeah, this is normal now. I'm like, what? I'm like, so like the world's changing kind of fast, even to where, how we do doctor's appointments and like online, online things. So the events are going to start coming back, but you guys all saw it. Like events, there used to be so few and they were really, really good. And then like everyone started launching cannabis events and then they got kind of convoluted. And then you did, like, there was one every weekend. And then so many vendor companies just started wasting money, like trying to go to every show it's really going to show you which shows matter, which shows don't and how actually like to, to break out, just like I said, with like, with the state of cannabis and a, and a really good shout out to, um, to Sensi and Sensi connect like the magazines and like the way they were doing some networking events, like they did it through zoom, like where they would break out and you'd go into these different like rooms, meet new people. Like it was really efficient. It worked out great. It was not uncomfortable. I met some great leads, like got a couple, got some new business out of it, found a new investor out of it. Um, where the normal other virtual conferences, like were just too hard to navigate and anything that they were making of a database of their exhibitors that each spent five grand each to do it. Like I could literally just like search online and find them and it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely evolution time, but also like, don't just fall for the next big thing thinking that's like, what's going to save you. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, some, vending machines, which I find interesting. Um, there's a guy out there in, in uh, at Cultivated Synergy in Denver that was trying to work on some vending machines. I'm curious, uh, Medbox, um, their old ticker symbol was M, M, uh, MDBX, I think. <clears throat> and it was this pump and dump. It went from like 20 cents to $20 to 200 bucks and back down. And they were really early on in the cannabis space talking about this convenience and everything, but I haven't seen it yet. And I know with Washington state, we still don't allow it because of, of the regulations with, you know, will it read your, your authorization? Will it read your uh, driver's license to make sure you're old enough to buy it? All of those things. And so they, you know, regulators are lazy. They don't want to try to do anything. 
I'm curious, with the regulations and compliance in the industry, how are you trying to utilize something like a vending machine that would be incredibly convenient, but the regulatory burdens are seem like a nightmare? Uh, are we going to have to wait for the UN and the WHO to give us approval for things like that? Or are you just going to keep on breaking through? No, it's so it's, it's going to be a state by state basis um, for these things. I mean, you can still buy cigarettes at certain places, like in certain countries, like with vending machines and, you know. Um, not to say that that's a good thing, but like still, even like, I remember one of the last times I was in Germany, I saw a Rattler, like Rattlers are like, kind of like a lemonade beer, really good summertime beer. And, but they're like three, 4%, like they were just selling them in normal. Like it's, it's based on our culture. So the thing that we do differently about our vending machines, like they're not standalone, like they're in a vestibule where there's a security guard behind like bulletproof glass and has that like little window thing so that we can do ID verification and check it on the machine also pre-order pickup so anything we keep our top 50 SKUs in the vending machines but then like anything else they can do pre-order pickup like literally like boop, 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 on the app pick it up right there and show their id so those vending machines we're making them because sometimes like with like people don't want to stand in line they just want a join or two like they don't want to go and like talk to somebody who's gonna be like yo this dab's gonna be so good for you like I don't need to talk to like a 22 year old who's telling me about like these new sorts of dabs. Like I want this kind of joint or I want this kind of edible or I'm getting this CBD topical for my grandpa or whatever it is. So those vending machines, like it kind of makes it easier for them to have a more anonymous experience um, right there by the, so like the machine's doing ID verification, but also they're doing dual verification with that um, security guard, which it actually pays for himself. Cause like if I can close the dispensary at nine and capture those sales until midnight, with one security guard compared to seven staff, a general manager, the on-site security guy, like walking all around and doing all that stuff too. Um, I'm still capturing revenue. So I think long-term pre-order pick up the apps where you can purchase on the, on the phones are gonna be great. Um, anything that's like gonna incorporate quicker, more efficient delivery services for people is huge. Basket sizes have really gone up. There's another round of stimulus checks coming out. So like we know that's gonna really help dispensaries that we're working in. But on, on our side, like, what I'm seeing is like so many investors are so distracted. Like they don't know the industry. They'll hear some new hype. They'll invest into like one of these new vending machines that doesn't actually do what we need it to. And it's garbage. So, I mean, one of the things that we're really considering with like our next SPAC is doing it where, for example, like we have a very low management fee, like 1% management fee compared to the normal two or three, but we're our fee structure, like that, like 15 or 20%, like on top of, of the profits, it's only if we 10 X your investment, do we actually even get any sort of like fees? So like right now we just see the industry is so desperate for good investment. We have so many opportunities desperate for capital. It's like half of my day is just like raising capital, deploying capital, reallocating capital returns and trying to come up with a new way. Cause like we only have a few more years to really like bonify this industry before like all the positions are kind of taken and then like the M&As and then legalization and then massive institutional capital. So, you know, what we're just trying to do now is we, we know the industry, so the investors don't have to. And ha having done this for 15 years, like they're like, oh, we're looking at this operation in Maine. I'm like, why? I mean, I know the only good thing in Maine. I know the only good things in Maine, like based on certain cities and retail, who the big producers are. There's a, like the same thing for Michigan, the same thing for like some of these new states like everyone going for New Jersey right now or the madness of for the seven to 13 licenses that were on the block for that $25,000 lottery in Arizona last week. Mm 
There were over 360 groups that did that. Arizona just made $9.4 million in lottery fees <laughs> for, for seven to 13 licenses that you couldn't transfer that you had to put in hellhole middle of nowhere, Arizona. No offense, Arizona. I love Arizona. But like there's some of the counties that these licenses were for, it's like three people and four sheep live there. And you're like, why would you, why would you want to go? But like 50 people would be like, let's get that license. And by comparison in Washington state, I know a guy who literally gave his license away because he didn't want to go to Winlock. Centralia and Winlock is where my grandparents lived at, <laughs> you know, like you, you would never sell anything there. Me. Crazy. Uh, yeah. But I, I could probably go on for another hour. We haven't even really dove into a lot of, of what I wanted to talk about because uh, there's so many interesting things going on right now, namely, you know, the advantages uh, in the industry. First mover advantages are big. You talked about just talking about cost savings with vending machines and the advantages of that. What other secrets would you be willing to divulge? You mentioned Puerto Rico in passing, and I'm curious if if other people are looking at either, I'm going to put this in quotes, distressed assets on the West Coast, you know, businesses that are not running optimally that are willing to get out of the game for pennies on the dollar versus the high premium for the emerging markets. You mentioned Arizona and New Jersey. What about Puerto Rico? What about the only place in the world that an American can go and not pay federal taxes, especially for a, a hemp or CBD company? Why wouldn't you go there? Why why would you mess around with any other state other than Puerto Rico? Isn't that the best advantage out there? Or am I being hyperbolic? A little hyperbolic, but there's some good to it as well. Um, so when it comes to residency and like where you incorporate your business, like there's, and I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an accountant, um, but like there, there's definitely advantages to that. Puerto Rico's medical cannabis program definitely had some issues. And right when it was launching a massive like hurricane came through and just destroyed a bunch of assets. Um, so I, I'm a big distressed asset investor as well, like string together like three or four dispensaries at all, like they all have the same problems. It's like we know how to fix all of those. We can string all those together, put in centralized management, more efficient automated ordering theory constraints, like, you know, 22 to like 30 percent like revenue bump from all four of those stores. Like so distressed asset side are good. Now, Puerto Rico's medical programs problematic, like, you know, in Guam. I've worked on Guam for the last five to six years, like getting medical legalized, getting adult use legalized, getting the first license in there, like working with the teams. Like there's places like that are good that most people miss that are just too challenging to get into um, for an outsider. Like you have to have like local good partners. But then when you're thinking about Guam, 200,000 people, but like three to 4 million tourists after coronavirus, like definitely gonna be better. Same thing with Puerto Rico, a lot of tourists there, taxes can be decent, but you have to have like that local you know, kind of involvement to do that correctly. Um, so I don't think just like, yeah, running and structuring your company there is a good idea, um, you know, from a tax standpoint, because they're very meticulous on like when you fly in, when you fly out and that 181 days a year, it's pretty, uh, pretty intensive. Um, some of the secret things that I like though, like for these new states, I mean, any new state, like any company, this is like one of the things I do with 3C with clients. Like if someone's interested in getting involved in a state, be it South Dakota, Montana, Mississippi, um, you know, Arizona, New Jersey, one of those new states, like starting with us early, like what's it take to run a cannabis company? How do we raise our capital? How do we start to build our team? Like our pre-application guidance? Like, I think I, I'm not going through all the numbers here, but I'd say like probably like the teams that work with us way early before an application comes out have like a seven times more likelihood chance of winning because they've already gone through like the tax planning and the this and the structuring and the marketing and the branding and building a team and finding real estate and community stuff. So, you know, one of the secrets, if you want to get a new license, start early. 
um, in that market and do not go at it alone. Like we've done this in over 30 markets in the US, be it us or another firm and only work with the company that's gonna do like success fees. Like other than Pennsylvania didn't allow those, but like, you know, always do success fees based on the people that are gonna help you with license work and know that it's gonna be more expensive than you could imagine. Like you've got real estate down payments, you've got all these other things. Um, other kind of big secrets now when I'm like, it's not just the public side, it's like find, there's a couple other funds like venture, venture cap funds. Some of them have no idea what they're doing. Like some of my competitors, um, I've just seen them like pretty much like throwing money away. Like this is going to be a great opportunity. I'm like, dude, I've known that market for five years. I know all of those players. I know the company they're investing into. I know about past fraud stuff there. I know how this is like, I'm like, who in their right mind would think this is a good idea? I'm like, oh, some like past capital manager people that don't know the industry. So like with capital managers, like we know cannabis and we know capital, like those are the teams that we've built to make sure like, we're not just like, oh, that IRR looks incredible. And like, oh, the CAGR is going to be fantastic. And like, I'm going to be able to do this for my EBITDA on my balance. It's like, you, if you don't know the industry correctly, you're going to get burned. Mm -hmm. So that's why fee structures are fine to share, like with wealth managers, with asset managers, because all we do is this industry each and every day. You're going to see this press release from this Canadian public company. You're going to see this thing here. You're going to hear this from your friend. You're going to probably make a poor decision or invest into some dispensary you think's killing it, that it's not structured correctly based on IRC 280E and property management companies, operational companies. I did this with a big dispensary chain in Denver um, a couple of weeks ago. Like, like, we're just not efficient. We want to kick out some partners, bring in some new partners and like, all right, let's talk about like your structure. Like, how are you guys incorporated? And they're like, well, we just have like one LLC and like it owns all the properties. And I'm like, so you're not getting any of your deductions, your depreciations, you're not able to raise debt capital. And, you know, this was a company that's doing over 35 million in revenue a year. And I'm like, why are you guys only netting 2.7? Did they have a CFO by chance? Oh yeah, they did. And the CFO was, you know, he'd been with them from the start and he knows the industry and like, it's one of those things like this, this industry has more ego than I've ever seen yeah. in Wisconsin. I remember some FFA kids like being like, ah, my cows are cooler than your cows. Like, <laughs> but it wasn't like, I'm the dankest master grower ever. It's like, you can't bet on master growers. No offense. Like they're not master business people. Some are, some have turned into that, but like you have to bring in like some outside experts sometimes, especially as we're starting to get efficient. And the lessons that I found with like a big team I was working in in Michigan, like all these ideas and things, I had done them all in Colorado. I'd done them in Massachusetts. I'd done them in other states. And they're like, how do we deal with this? I'm like, this. How do we deal with this? This. I'm like, have you guys thought of that? No, let's do this. Like they're starting at ground zero. So like if you're, I love the new new opportunities because it's a cheap buy-in and it's a new opportunity to like be a good positive example. But it's really looking at efficiencies now, good greenhouse when possible, outdoor in the states that allow it not just the same extraction methodologies or the same things you've ever always done, looking for new packaging partners, new formulation science, like some of the things Vertosa and some of these other companies are coming out with, like it's fantastic for like standardization and formulations compared to like, you know, garbage. Or, you know, even when we think about like the big players and the big winners out there, I'm, I'm just going to mention some stuff. This is all public information, of course, but like you look at like Juana's, like the number one, like edible selling brand in the country. Great job on how they've marketed and branded and so forth. You look at the ingredients though, high fructose corn syrup, red 40. It's like, what is this garbage? I mean, you could be doing tapioca starch, beet coloring, monk fruit flavoring, like all organic based like fruit in it and for literally the same price. So just cause like you're killing it on a marketing and branding standpoint, 
eventually people are going to start to look at your products. And just because you paid for shelf space and you paid for things, you've got better marketing and you're, you're paying, I'm not saying Juan is doing this, but maybe you're paying for some click mill people in like Malaysia to like give you better reviews. Like a lot of companies do this kind of stuff. I'm not saying Juana does and hopefully they don't. I doubt they do. Great people there. But like don't make garbage products. Like just because you can and like get away with this in the industry early on, we have a responsibility, not just an opportunity like to this plant and future generations and how we establish this industry. And like for investors, like my number one rule is not losing investment dollars. And it comes from the knowledge of this industry and where it's going to be good. Some of my positions are short-term, some are medium, some are long-term. And some of the long-terms, like it takes, you know, some, tr some trust to really understand, like, why am I choosing to put their capital there where it's going to need to pop, probably be there five to seven years. But if it's like a hundred, 200 Xer, I'm going to do that. So like how we diversify our strategies is the most important thing. And the biggest challenge that investors make is they go single asset. And like when I go for assets, it's like, okay, instead of investing into this one dispensary, let's invest into six because I know them all. I trust them all, but nepotism or one bad thing could cause one of them to fail. And you as an investor have no idea what that thing's going to be or some fraud, some CEO fraud thing, or, you know, sexual allegations on like, you know, look at like the governor in New, New, New York right now. Like here's a program about to start a couple of things happen. It's like that person can't do anything anymore. That like, if that was a company, that's a dead company. So diversification is the only way to survive, especially with fund managers, that this is all we do on a daily basis. What is your moment of maturity? For me, when I see infused coffee, wherever I go, that's when I know that the, that the, the market is mature enough to be able to afford cheap coffee. I think Portland is the only place where you can find it on the regular. It's not cheap. It's like $15 for 12 ounces. Um, <laughs> So when are we, when are we going to have, I already asked you this question. When are we going to have cheap coffee? Actually, never mind. Who cares? What is, what is your moment of a maturity for the market? When, when are we going to have my, my equivalent of infused coffee? No, the goal is like through efficiency and like the hard things, like when you're standardizing brands and like doing brand licensing contracts across state lines, it's hard to maintain that consistency mm -hmm. so until we have some sort of like federal office of medical cannabis and interstate commerce is allowed to where I can do mass production in one place and mass distribution, that's going to lower cost immensely. But I do see that if, if we avoid some of our greed right now as individuals and we start working together, it's like, who are so like, just like I learned in anthropology, like collaboration versus competition, like collaboration is three times more successful. And just like matrilineal societies, they last longer when they collaborate other than just fight and kill each other all the time. So like, this is a moment that, that even as an investor, I'm like, who are some of my competitors? What are some things that we do similarly? Cause like the same problems I have in this company, they're having that company. How do we maybe start doing some merger acquisitions and get efficiency in both and start to capture market share in both of those companies. But you know, at this stage, you gotta be mindful like volume over margin, like stop worrying so much just on the margin of each product and know that if you're like doing a good consumer experience you could potentially have that consumer for life. Mm -hmm. And even if instead of me making 41% margin on that product once it's like mediocre, if I make 17% margin on that product and I sell them five of those, I still made more money. I kept my company running longer. And like that person's gonna like be a better brand ambassador for me. So that's really where I'm at when it comes to like how long until we get to that point. It's like when companies start to abandon some greed and really look to some of these new solutions for how to like, we can start to work together. Hmm. I like that. That vision is, uh, I'm, I'm digging it. <laughs> little by little. Yeah. 
Um, is there uh, anything that we left out or if nothing else, uh, some links that people can find you at? We'll include those in the, the show notes in the description. Yeah, I mean, d- definitely, you know, 3ccannabis.com, also multiversecap.com. You know, we keep things separate, um, you know, on a compliance standpoint. You know, 3C, we've had over a thousand different clients, you know, across 30 states, 19 countries. We've got six languages on staff um, that work with that. But, you know, we've done these sorts of things before. And over this next year, we're really starting to focus on like very big specific projects, not just taking like the smaller consulting. Um, there's plenty of companies out there doing that. But if you're serious about getting into a new state, starting early, like how do we deal with like the lobbying, the policy, the banking, like what should our strategy be? What do we do in what order? That's really where we're specialists and we can always do reduced fee structures, equity type compensations. Um, also first order, you know, and if you're looking for capital, you know, multiversecap.com, we're always looking at decks always looking for like new investors and coming up with very unique fee structures to like only if we're like successful or hit certain targets, are you going to be successful as well? Because, you know, we can't just have all the money keep going into public companies. There's so many fraudsters in that doing nothing. And there's epic private companies right now that are scaling that need capital now that are asset backed, that are just money makers that, you know, we have exclusivity to most investors can't even find them. So if you're looking at investing in the space, don't go at it alone either. Um, you know, look for some experts that can help with that. And, you know, it's always fun to like look at new cannabis ventures and look at some of these places and see what's happening with stocks and the news, but there's more that's going on than these stories. And like, we've been in this for 15 years. This is all we do. Like, this is all we're going to do. <laughs> so if you need help, we're definitely here to assist. Beautiful. And we'll have some of those uh, links in the, in the description in the show notes as well. So I want to thank my guest, Nick Easley, the CEO and founder of 3C and also CEO and managing partner of um, Multiverse Capital. I don't know how you do it all, but um, love, love having you on the show. Can't wait to have you back on. Maybe in a few months, we'll do a recap of uh, what uh, 2021 was first, uh, first and second quarter, what the, the future will, will hold. I appreciate you being on the, on the talking hedge. Yeah, not a problem. My pleasure to be here. Best of luck, Josh. Appreciate it. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down.